0: Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a part of our Women in the Word teaching team, and I love Psalm 62, and I am excited that we get to talk about it today. I actually love all of the Psalms. They are a place that over the years I go to in a variety of situations, but honestly, I'll go there a lot when things are hard or when I have strong emotions, and there seems to be a comfort and equipping a safety that I find there that's really special to me. So I have been known many times to grab my Bible, especially the book of Psalms, and go to one of my secret places in the area. They're not special. They're just places that I have gone, and sometimes I'll pull aside with the Lord if I'm really in a place that I'm wanting or needing to meet with him and hear from him. And often what happens is maybe about the middle of that time or especially toward the end of that time, after I've communicated what's hard, um, he will move me to trust Sometimes it's easy to trust him or sometimes it's just a reminder that I really need to fight to trust him because I know that even though those emotions are real and that circumstances are real, almost never during that time that I've prayed has the situation been fully resolved. I'm gonna have to get up and I'm gonna have to go back to some right, good, quote-unquote, real-life things that I'm gonna need to do. I'm gonna need to send a text I'm going to need to pick up a kid at school. I'm going to need to make a work call. I'm going to need to go to the grocery store. And that situation and some of those emotions are still there. But I need and would like some help in how do I take the truth of God? How do the scriptures equip me to kind of do real life when I'm in a hard situation? And if that is something you struggle with or would like to know, I think you are going to especially like Psalm 62 Because we've been looking throughout our study of the psalms at David in some hard places. This is not our first psalm where we've seen David in a hard place, but I think we're going to find something different in this psalm than some of the other psalms that we have been in. For example, a number of the other psalms we've read where David was in a hard place pretty quickly in the psalm, he cries out to the Lord. For example, in Psalm 51, the very first verse says, Have mercy on me, O God. And yet, in Psalm 62, David doesn't directly talk to God until the middle of the last verse, until verse 12. Also, in some of the other psalms we've read, there's been some pretty desperate language that we've read. For example, last week in Psalm 55, we saw this. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan. In Psalm 62, it's a hard situation, but we don't see quite that desperate or an emotional language at least written in the psalm for us. In a number of our other psalms, there have been some really bold requests that David has made of God. For example, in Psalm 7, he said, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. And in Psalm 62, David doesn't ask God anything. He doesn't ask him anything. That's one of the reasons why in your homework question, the first thing I asked was, what's a worship song that you really resonate with? Because in some ways, Psalm 62 is to me kind of like a worship song where you're declaring truth, Um, even though obviously it has other applications and implications. There's no request of the Lord in the psalm. There are a variety of different genres of psalms you may hear about, even many more than what I'm getting ready to mention. There are laments. There are psalms of trust, of wisdom, of praise and thanksgiving, and of many more. And often in a song, you a psalm, rather, you may see flavors of different genres, and I think that's what we see here. We're going to get a little taste of lament. We're going to be able to tell David is in a hard place. It talks about him being shaken or not being shaken we're going to see a whole lot of trust. A lot of trust, a lot of focus on God, a lot of focus on God's character. Even we're going to see in verse 8 David calling us to trust. And then we're going to get wisdom. The last 4 verses of this psalm, verses 9 through 12, are really more like wisdom literature like the proverbs. They're actually statements and principles of wisdom. And I don't know, but when you're when I'm in a hardship, I'd really like some trust. And I'd really like some wisdom. So I'm personally really excited about what we're going to see in this psalm because I think it's really helpful for me. I'm actually going to read through the whole psalm because I want to give you a taste and a flavor for some of the different genres we see referenced here. And then we're going to go look back at it more specifically. Starting in verse 1, we're going to step into some trust. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. We then again now move into a little bit of lament. He leads with how long, meaning there's a hardship that's been going on a while. Let's read verses three and four. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. We're going to go back to some trust. Verse 5. On God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then we're going to start these statements of wisdom in verses 9 through 12. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Hardship filled with trust and filled with wisdom. Let's look at this a little bit more specifically. In verses 3 and 4, we're going to learn a little bit more about what's happening. There's a destabilizing attack. We see David perhaps in a high position, and there are people trying to push or pull him down like you would push over a tottering fence or a leaning wall. How long indicates that this difficulty may have been going on a while? And because we're gonna read later in the Psalm about how we use our status and our money, I think there's a good chance that David is likely being attacked by influential, wealthy people who are wanting to knock him down. We're gonna learn a little bit more about these people. It says in the text that they, the attackers, plan. There's an intentionality to this. This jarring phrase that every time I read it just gets me. They take pleasure in falsehood. The idea of finding joy in lies is very jarring to me. That hatred of the truth. And then what comes out of it? Well, what comes out of it is someone who would bless with their mouths. Inwardly, they curse. There's deception, manipulation, perhaps being two-faced. This heart that hates the truth, and then out of it comes deception and manipulation. Deceptive, selfish actions and words overflow from hearts that hate the truth. I told you we weren't going to spend a whole lot of time on the emotions in this psalm, but let's stop for just a minute. That's hard. That's hard. David didn't write about his emotions really much in this psalm, but it wouldn't surprise me if he had another psalm somewhere or some time with the Lord where he did express some emotion about it because that's hard. When you've had someone with money or influence negatively impact you, someone behind your back deceive or manipulate, that's hard. And we live in Texas, which is very smile and be friendly to your face, but we know sometimes what goes on behind our backs, don't we? There is cursing with our hearts, and sometimes backstabbing happens. David experiences this difficulty from those who are on a path that are clearly opposed to God. If you know me very well, I'm very nerdy, especially about the scriptures the smallest detail brings me so much joy and worship and is so life-changing for me. And it was very hard to limit the number of those to share with you today because it's kind of like Christmas. So you're invited to my Christmas party and I hope you have fun because I just love it. So this is going to be one of those times. There's a word that In the original Hebrew, it's transliterated into English AK. I've tried multiple times to pronounce it correctly. I can't. So I'm going to say the word AK. Please don't go to anyone who speaks Hebrew and pretend that this is how this word is translated. It's not. It is used six times in this psalm. There's a lot of repetition in this psalm. It's used in verse 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, and 9. And in your translation, it probably is one of these words. It might be the word truly with an emphasis, or it might be the word only or alone. Either of those are pointing to some significance. I want to tell you how this word is used in one place to talk about the attackers. What is their truly? What is their only? In verse four, it says, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. There's a path that does not trust God, does not truly trust God or do things that honor him. There's another path, and I want to read four of the times that the word act is used in these verses because there's a path of trusting God that's opposed to the path of the attackers. In verse 1, for God alone or God truly, my soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. And in verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. David is on a path, and the attackers are not on that path. You'll notice also in verse 3 and 4, David is talking to and about the attackers. That is his audience here. And I think he does a really good job of acknowledging the reality of what is actually going on. And I think that's an important takeaway from us, especially when we're in a hardship, that we look at things through what is actually true. We need to acknowledge the reality of our situation and the people around us. And to be honest, I think that's harder to do than we think it is. Because to be honest, sometimes what I do is I will look at a problem, I will assess it, and then I will bring it to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, will you help me with a solution? But the reality is I need God's help to accurately assess what's actually going on. Because sometimes I'm a little too gullible. I want to believe the best about something, and that's just not what reality is. That's not what's true. Sometimes, because I live in cancel culture, I'm tempted to see one person say one thing one time, and I want to attribute a bunch of motives and intentions to them that I don't know that they have, and I'm quick to cut them off. I want to accurately assess what's going on in my life so that I'm applying God's wisdom and truth to what's actually happening rather than a misunderstanding or just overlooking it on my part. I want to invite God in to helping figure out the problem. I want to gather as much information as I can. I want to evaluate my own sin and biases. And to be honest, one of my secret tricks, which is not a secret because I'm telling you, and it's not really a trick. It's just God's grace to me. One of the most helpful things in my life is God has given me a few friends and my dad that are incredibly high in discernment, and they are kind enough and willing enough to come ask me questions and help me look at things at times if I'm over or understating something or if my sin or my perspective is off. They are very kind, and they have all told me things I did not want to hear. I think it's really important that we acknowledge the reality of what is actually going on. David does that and he's experiencing this pain. He sees it for what it is. What does he do with it? Well, we read in verses one and two and in verses five through seven, what he does with it. And there's a lot of repetition there. So it's clearly important. I'm going to just read verses one and two for you. For God alone, my soul waits in silence From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. David turns to an unshakable refuge. Humans have influence and money and they can wreak havoc, but nothing like the influence, power, and wealth of God. David turns to a mighty God whose power and resources exceed all others exceed all others. Look at 1st Chronicles 29 verse 11 and 12 on your verse sheet. These are the words of David describing the power of God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. David turns to God, and he finds refuge in the strength of God, which, to be honest, is the only stable place to stand. We saw in verses 3 and 4 some language that described very unstable things we saw a leaning wall, a tottering fence, and David being thrust down. Instability. But the words that we just read about God are very strong and they're very stable. Rock, fortress, salvation, refuge, not shaken. Doesn't mean your circumstances at time won't be staking, but when you are standing on a rock that has all power and all strength and can protect you, You do not have to be unstable when you are standing on something that is totally stable. Isn't God breathtaking and fascinating, that power and that strength? And it's going to get even better. I just love this part. In verses 1 and 2 and in verses 5 through 7, 12 times, 12 times David uses a certain word, a reference to God or things he's gotten from his relationship with God. He does not say in the text, God is a fortress or a rock. He doesn't say, God is the fortress or the rock. He uses the word my. Read with me every one of those times. Verse one, he says, God is my salvation. Verse two, he's my rock, my salvation, my fortress. Verse five, he's my hope. Verse six, he's my rock My salvation, my fortress, verse seven. My salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge. David believes that who God is, he is for him. He takes this power and this refuge and the fact that he gets to stand in and hide on that very personally. Can you believe that just because we believe in Christ that you and I can say that? Do you know how breathtaking that is, that I get to say that God is my fortress, my refuge? I literally have chills saying it out loud. He's mine, I get to belong to him. And the reality is, it's absolutely ridiculous that sometimes I don't trust in him. Sometimes I trust in other things. That is silliness, why would I go anywhere else? I have an only, I have a truly. Verse one, God alone. Verse two, he alone. Verse five, God alone. Verse six, he only. I have an only and he's mine because Jesus lets me belong to him. David reminds himself to rest solely, truly, only in God and to wait. Find that inner rest and peace in him. We need to repeatedly remind ourselves of truth and deepen our dependence on God alone. Repeatedly remind. In these five verses that we've read, David is talking to himself, he's talking to his own soul. He is the audience. I have a niece who likes to talk to herself, and she likes to talk to herself out loud. So sometimes I think she's talking to me, but she's just talking to herself and reminding herself of something. One of the stories that makes me chuckle is an elementary school teacher, appropriately so, would take away a book from a child that was reading a book while there was a lesson. And my niece was known to do that, and she did not like it when that happened, but she knew it was her fault. And so one day the teacher said, as my niece was walking away from the desk, she wasn't being disrespectful, she was talking to herself, and she was like, I have got to stop doing that. I do not like it when she takes my book away. She was reminding herself of what she wanted to remember. We get a lot of messages. I get messages from friends, from family, from colleagues, from culture. There are a lot of things that run through my head, even my own sin. What are you listening to the most? You are the person who spends the most time with you. You are the person who spends the most time with you. Will you own the responsibility of being the one that with God help repeats the truth to yourself over and over and over again, ensues and drills it into your soul, and then begins to make choices more and more consistent with what that truth is. You repeating it doesn't change who God is. He still is that. But it sure does change where your trust is and it sure does change what your experience is. Whatever it takes, would you remind yourself of the truth a million times in whatever simple or profound way works for you and enables your soul to hear it. If you write things on index cards, great. If you're a sticky note person, great. If you want to paint a picture and put it on the wall because it reminds you of something about the character of God, great. If you're in a meeting and you're bored and you're doodling, doodle about the character of God. Put a reminder on your phone. Whatever it takes, would you own that? I'm a scripture memory person. That's me. I started memorizing a few days ago, verses 5 through 7. It's not there yet, but if you see me in the grocery store next week, I hope to have it so you can ask me about it. If you get nothing else out of this lesson, if you have to leave right now, if you would do this, I would be happy. Own the responsibility of knowing the character of God and repeatedly drilling it into your soul in every way that you can. I hope you don't leave because I actually really like this next section and I think it's going to be fun. But anyway. I don't want you to leave, but I really want you to repeat the truth to yourself. And I think by now you probably get that. So we're going to turn to a new audience. And here's the audience that David turns to. He turns to the people who are with him. And he makes this statement in verse 8 Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David's still in the hardship, he hasn't waited for the hardship to pass to encourage or say something kind to somebody else. While he is experiencing a hardship, he is looking out to the people around him, and he has an outward focus. He's telling whoever comes, trust in him at all times. It doesn't matter what problem or what situation a person is in, because God's the place that you should go. He tells them, pour out your heart before him, One way that this can be interpreted that just makes me smile every time I think about it is there's a way to interpret this pour out that can actually mean gush out. And I have this image of like a dam breaking and the water that gushes. Whatever is in your heart, would you gush that out before the Lord? Why? David changes a word here. He says, God is not a refuge for me, which he does think that, but he says, God is a refuge for us. He knows that God is a refuge not just for him, but for any others who are in Christ. David selflessly encourages others to fully trust God at all times and in all situations. It sounds a whole lot to me like 1 Thessalonians 5:11 on your verse sheet. Encourage one another and build one another up. Certainly, it's important that we care for others. But I think in this psalm where we're also fighting for trust, I think encouraging others to trust God helps me with my trust. Because it helps free me from my selfishness. It helps free me from some of my bitterness. It gives me a perspective that I need. It gives me accountability. If I'm encouraging you to trust God, then perhaps I'm more likely to trust him myself And what I hope is happening is that David is in a community where he is telling other people to trust, but there are people telling him to trust. And that he's hearing those messages and truths back to himself from the people that are in that community. Easily one of the most profound influential things in my life is being in a community of people that trust God and watching them trust God. And then when I'm in a hard situation, they are the ones that come to me and say, Kathy, this is who God is. Trust him. That has been profoundly life-changing for me to have people that have done that for me. And if I could, I would come to every one of you and I would grab your hands. Or if I know you well, I would put my hands on your cheek and I would say, God is a refuge for you. Trust him. I would will into your soul. The fact that God is your refuge and trusting him is absolutely the best thing. David longs not just for those around him to trust, but he longs for them to walk with wisdom. Read with me verse 9 because I think it's difficult to understand. He says, "Those of low estate are better breaths. those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up, they are together, lighter than a breath." I'd like to share what I think is the best interpretation of this verse. If you imagine some old-school scales, they're really just like a seesaw. And on one side of the scale, you've got people with low estate. A little bit of influence, a little bit of money. You've got them together with people of high estate. A lot of influence, a lot of money, and what they're trusting in and what their path looks like. And on the other side, you have God and his weightiness and his wealth and influence in his ways. And if you imagine me on a seesaw with one of my preschool nieces and nephews, if they're on this side and I'm on this side, I'm weightier than they are, right? So when we lift our feet up, what's going to happen? I'm going to go down and they're going to go up because they are not nearly as weighty as God and his character and his ways. So what I think David is pushing us toward here is regardless of what is happening to you, there is nothing or no one weightier than God. So trusting in him and his ways is more powerful and weighty than the other side. Now, there's a flip to that, and David's going to do that. Remind us of that in just a minute. Every one of us has some amount of power and influence. We tend to usually think about the people that have more money or power than us, but we all have more money and power than someone. You have influence in your friend groups, in your small groups, in your family, in your workplace. Everywhere you go, you have power and influence. So the question of this passage is, is that what you're trusting? And how are you using the influence and the money that you have? Are you using it for good? Which is great. But are you trusting in it? And are you using it wrongly? Look with me in verse 10. David says put no trust in extortion set no vain hopes on robbery if riches increase do not set your heart on them look with me on your verse sheet at proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 remove far from me falsehood and lying give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is needful for me lest i be full and deny you and say who is the lord Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You got to be careful with what we do with money. Read with me also 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Doesn't that sound like just what David said in Psalm 62.10 where he says, if riches increase, don't set your hearts on them. Anyway, back to 1 Timothy. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. David cautions others against depending on and exploiting human status and riches. And I think that as we have friends walking through hardship, and frankly for our own hearts, it can be real easy to trust or to try to grasp for money and influence as our means of stability. And that is not where our stability needs to be. It needs to be in God and who he is. I have a friend who kept coming to mind as I was reading this psalm. We grew up together, and we periodically talked to each other, and so I called her, and her family really lived Psalm 62, which is why I kept thinking of her. Over about a decade, a company with a lot of money and power and influence just really tried to harm her family. It's a company, frankly, that's still well thought of and known because I Googled it, and the governor had recently said something positive about them in a press release Nonetheless, over a decade, very intentionally and very planned, they attacked my friend's family. They bankrupted them, prevented them from jobs in neighboring states. They literally had the power and influence to impact a judge, an ADA, the FBI, cause people to lie in court. And other than the grace of God, there would have been a prison sentence. And I haven't begun to tell you the worst parts of it. It was terrible. But my friend throughout that was the one who she was the one in her family. She was young, didn't have kids, wasn't married. She was the one that said, we're trusting God. This is what we're going to do. And after I talked to her, she sent me back a couple pages of her journals from that season, which was decades ago. And she had cried out to the Lord in really hard times. And she said two things in that conversation that struck with me in regards to Um, encouraging others to trust God and being careful with our money. She said, um, during that season, a friend, a woman, unexpectedly took out a loan against her home to give them money so that they could have a lawyer. And she said, years later, that woman came to her and said, I never expected to see any of that money back. And after the court case, when they were bankrupt, they worked and repaid that lady every dime. And my friend, in recounting that story with me, said, you know, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. She has kids now. And she said, I really need to go tell my kids what God has done for our family because I really want them to know who he is. Encourage others to trust God and to avoid misuse of power and wealth. Quite often when I'm in those prayer times with the Lord, um, I know that I'm gonna to have to return to things, and I quite often end pretty simply. Maybe it's a statement of trust, quite often clinging to a characteristic or two of God, and that's what David does here. He ends in verse 11 and 12 by focusing on a reliable God. Read with me verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. David finally addresses God directly. And he doesn't ask for anything. He just proclaims God's strength and God's love. God, this is who you are. You are good and you are powerful. And while I think it is wonderful to ask God for things, sometimes when you're in the moment in the middle of the day, just recount real quickly what the character of God is. Just recount who he is and lean on that. Also, David then restates that God will deal rightly with both the righteous and the unrighteous. We talked about that a good bit in verse, sorry, Psalm 7, where we looked at that phrase, God rendering to a man according to his work. For those who have not trusted God and not done what God wanted them to do, God will judge and handle and they will have consequences for that. And those who are in Christ, who have trusted them, God is going to handle that as well. We can be confident of that. We need to recount to God what's true of his character and his ways. When I first wrote that statement, I had it written down in my drafts differently for a long time. And then I finally looked at it and I was like, mm, I think I can make that better. And so I want to tell you what I initially said and why I think this is better. What I had initially said and written on your outline was this. Recount to God what you believe to be true of God's character and his ways. That's not all bad. But the reality is, sometimes I think and believe the wrong things about God. And I don't need to be recounting to God what I believe is true. I need to be recounting to God what is true of his character and his ways. Um, about a month ago, I was having coffee with my friend Cheryl, And she began to tell me about her friend Barbara, and I had not met Barbara until Literally today, I got to meet Barbara face-to-face, but she was telling me a story about Barbara, and after she told me the story, I said, do you mind if I ask Barbara that story? And she said, sure, I'll connect y'all. So she reached out to Barbara and connected us, and so I called Barbara, and I said, hey, Cheryl was telling me this story. Do you mind repeating it to me? And she told me a story about how years ago she had heard someone say that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. Because to the degree that you believe correctly, that's going to positively impact your life. And to the degree that you don't, that will distort your life. And so she said, she picked up the Psalms and for months went through every Psalm and she wrote down everything she could learn about the character of God. Because she wanted to make sure what she was believing was true. And then she told me this. She said, after a while, I realized I really want my grandkids to know this. She has six grandkids and 15 great-grandchildren so far. And she um, said, I want them to know. So she went back through over years every psalm, and she wrote what she had experienced in that psalm so that they would know. But she says this to me at the end. She says, but really, they've heard my stories, but mainly what I want them to know is who God is. That's what she wanted them to know. As we walk through hardships, we need to acknowledge and see what's really happening, even when it's hard. We need to repeat and drill the truth into our soul in every way that we can. We want to share with others about trusting God and walking with wisdom. And we want to recount to God who he is. I've told you before that repetition, I think, is my main takeaway from this psalm. And I was recently at a soccer game of five-year-old girls, and for many of them, this was the first time for them to play soccer, and so they're still learning. And it was the marshmallows versus the mermaids. (laughs) This was the teams. And very often during this game, multiple times, when the ball was stopped, you would see the coaches go to the marshmallows and say, marshmallows, which one is your goal? And they would all the marshmallows would point toward their goal. And then they would say to the mermaids, Mermaids, what's your goal? And the mermaids would point to the other goal. Because when you're five and you're learning to play soccer, sometimes you forget what the goal is, right? You get a little distracted by a flower or your shoes untied, or you really just came for the snack and you're wondering when the game's over. And you got your coaches yelling at you and the crowd is yelling at you. And then you're looking at the other team and the other team's going another way. And you you get a little bit bit turned around and you go the wrong direction. You just need a reminder what the goal is, right? Well, here's the thing. I'm not very much different than a five-year-old soccer player. Sometimes I get a little distracted by some flowers and some untied shoes. Or I hear some people yelling from the sidelines and I start listening to that a little too much. I'm watching the direction that the other team is going. And I start trying to think I should go that way. Or sometimes I even well meaningly get turned around and start going the the wrong way. And I don't even know I'm going the wrong way. And to be honest, sometimes I just want to sit down and have a snack. (laughs) That's not real life. That's not the game we're in and that's not the goal. There is a God... If you're in Christ, he is your refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him at all times, O women, in the word, beautiful women. Gush, gush out your heart before him. For he's not just a refuge for me. He is, I guarantee A refuge for you. Pray with me. Lord, you are good and you are powerful. And I cannot believe that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you have made it so that I and a group of women get to call you my refuge, my rock, my hope, my salvation. That is beyond mind-blowing and encouraging to me. God, we need your help remembering. Would you help us remember? Would you enable each one of us to own the responsibility of speaking and massaging into our own soul the truth of who you are? Because we forget, we get turned around, and sometimes we just want to give up. God, you are good, and you are full of steadfast love. You are powerful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.